If you have a copy of the Scriptures before you, I invite you this evening to turn to Luke chapter 11, the Gospel of Luke chapter 11. take time to read from verse 14. We covered verse 14 through verse 28 last Lord's Day, but since it is all really part of the same scene, and you may not have been here last Lord's Day, at least it'll be helpful for you to read the portion, even if you weren't here for the message. So, look, chapter 11, we have the Word of God before us. Let's pay as careful attention as we can to the Word of God and hear it, we trust with profit. Luke chapter 11, verse 14. And he was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. And it came to pass, when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. But some of them said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. And others, tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges." But if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted, and divideth his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, He walketh through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. He saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. When he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. It came to pass, as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the woman that bare thee, and the paps which thou hast sucked. But he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. When the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given it but the sign of Jonas the prophet. For as Jonas was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation." The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Amen. Ending our reading at verse 32. Let's 
seek the Lord, beloved, again, just asking for His help. We always need it. Many distractions in our hearts, in our minds, even around us. And it is the Spirit to, we need to help us in the hearing of the Word. Our eternal God, we have been smitten already by the scene put before us by John Newton, a reminder that some may make profession, and they, like Judas, they kiss the Lord Jesus, and yet they still play with the world, with folly, with vice. And God, I pray that Thou wilt root that out of everyone here. I beg Thee, Lord, that none of us would be found on that day in such a condition where we have convinced everyone but the one that matters, the judge of all the earth. God, may everyone be soundly saved in this place. We beg Thee, please, deliver us from the tragedy that awaits for those that must watch on, those they knew that heard the word were brought up under the word, but never, never truly knew Jesus Christ. Spare me that lament, I pray. Spare us all. So grant thy spirit now, take the plain preaching of thy word and extend thy kingdom. To that end, fill us with thy spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Can Satan perform miracles? Can he perform the miraculous? I ask that question because the scene we looked at last week, where our Lord Jesus performs a miracle, brings an accusation that Jesus is doing what he is doing by the allegiance he has to Satan. He casts out demons by Beelzebub. There is a view of miracles that is much narrower than how we often hear it used. We, we hear it used in all sorts of ways. Uh, a child is born, we say it's a miracle. We, some event transpires in a way that is highly advantageous. We might say it's a miracle. But often these things, they're not miracles. A true miracle must be, to use the Latin, contra naturum, that is contrary to nature. It can't be expected. It's the last thing you would imagine would happen. It goes against everything that we see in the order of nature around us. And Christ's miracles were such. His miracles were contrary to the natural order. Things like that he did, whether it be the delivering men from their sicknesses and illnesses in an instant, or other occasions like turning water into wine, there are various occasions that we look and say, this isn't, this isn't according to the natural order of things. This is contrary to nature. So we ask the question, can Satan do that which is contrary to nature? When Paul writes of the Antichrist, 
the man that perhaps more than any other individual that will ever live, that is more under the dominion of Satan than anyone else, we're told of him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. And there are many that ascribe that adjective of lying wonders to the power and the signs as well. These are, these are lying power. This is a lying power, a deceiving, as it were, power or sign. Its purpose is to deceive. But whatever the signs are, whatever the power is that is expressed or performed, the wonders that cause people to marvel, none of these things are contrary to the natural order. And those that hold that view do so for good reason. Turn for just a moment to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. I should just point out there how applicable that is in light of some of the lines of the hymn we sang together giving earnest heed. You don't just attend the house of God, beloved, and you don't just scan your Bible, you read it in a way where earnestly you apply yourself to respond to what it says. We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received the just recompense of reward, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation, there will be no overlooking your neglect, your rejection, your unbelief in the face of the gospel. And we're told, the middle of verse 3, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diver miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. But I want you to see that the word was confirmed. Verse 3, the spoken by the Lord was confirmed unto us. What they saw, what was heard, what was recorded, received this approval that was distinct from anything and anyone else. In other words, if Satan could perform evidences that were contrary to the natural order, what is distinct then about Jesus Christ? If some antichrist, some other individual should come along and perform things contrary to the natural order, how should we distinguish the true Messiah? And so the position held by such, and I see the reason why, is that we cannot then believe that whatever the extent of Satan's power, however great it might be, it does not ever express itself in a way contrary to the natural order of things. Only Jesus Christ and His apostles appointed by Him to do similar things capable of such things, men under His blessing and power. 
So we go back to our passage where Jesus is doing that which is contrary to the natural order. He's doing things that cannot be explained. As we said last week, early in his ministry, Nicodemus says, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man doeth these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. We know. In his mind, he's not up like debating whether or not this is of God or whether it's of Satan. That's been answered. It is evident. Clearly, this is the work of God. But in our passage, as we read, when Christ casts out the devil that was in the person that was dumb, there are these various responses. And there are people that refuse to believe. Some of them wonder, verse 14. Some are saying, as we've said, that this is because of the power of the devil that is in him. And others are seeking for a sign. Christ then, as he deals with them and speaks after this miracle, speaks in such a way that garners even more of a crowd. The miracle is one thing. The miracle causes people to be startled. It spreads. Did you see what he did? There's the whispers of the crowd and so on. And when we come then to verse 29, by this stage we're told when the people were gathered thick together. Everyone wants a peace. Everyone wants to see what's going on. All the people are pressing in. And our Lord Jesus is speaking very plainly to them. He's not trifling. He's actually drawing a line in the sand. If you're not with me, you're against me. Where do you fall? So we come then to verse 29 through 32. Verses 33 through 36 are also in keeping with the scene, but I just didn't want to deal with too much this evening. So we're looking then at verses 29 through uh, 32, where we deal with sign seekers exposed. Sign seekers exposed. I want you to note with me, first of all, that there's a charge here, a charge. Verse 29, when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. They seek a sign. It is an evil generation. They seek a sign. That's some charge. For the Son of God to stand before His generation and say, this, this, this generation here is evil. I want you to note firstly the narrowness of the charge. Christ has already been critical of this generation. You go back to Luke 7, 31 through 35, you'll see that. Of course, the question that arises is, well, well, I know my Bible. Isn't every generation evil? Does the Bible not say that there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not? Does it not say all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? Does it not say all men are liars? Does it not say that all the world is guilty before God? Yes, it says all of those things. But Christ is pronouncing upon His generation, in Israel specifically, a higher degree of condemnation than usual. We have to ask the question then, why? Why would he do that? Why does he set them apart? Why does he make them distinct? Why is it that he speaks of them in this way? Is it because of their immorality? Is it because of the amount of murder that's going on? Is it because of the the lies that they tell? Is it because of other breaches of the law, the theft and just the... A lack of peace and law-abiding that is going on. Is that, is that the reason why? Or is there something else? 
And when you read all the context here and you, you keep it all in mind, you realize that the, the, the fundamentally the reason they are more evil than any other generation is because they had been more favored than any other generation. Sometimes we, we dislike generalizations. Someone says something that's a generalization and you, you kind of feel repulsed by it. That's, that's a... That's a sweeping generalization. You shouldn't use generalizations. And yet the Bible does it. Paul said that the Cretans are always liars. Uh, and, and Jesus here says that the entire generation is, is evil. Now, was every person there living before him evil? No. But the generalization still was true. Generally, this was the case. Here are a people that are on earth living when God visits the earth. When God comes in human form and reveals Himself in ways that have never been witnessed before, that is in accordance with all the prophets and what they declared they should see, and they refuse to heed Him. They live to see Him perform sign after sign after sign. He had just performed one back in verse 14. And again, one of the responses is, Instead of bowing to it and recognizing it, they, they immediately say, this is by the power of Satan. So in this way, then, this generation is more evil. They are more evil in the fact that they have been more privileged. And they'd be more privileged in the area that matters more than any other area. It's not about prosperity. It's not, it's not because you live in a certain country that has the highest GDP on the planet. That doesn't make you more privileged than any other person. You live in such an environment, you haven't known, most of you here, I've never known not living in such an environment. But that doesn't make you more privileged in the way like here our Lord is dealing with. He is dealing with a people, a generation that had the Word incarnate before them fulfilling every prophecy that was spoken of Him. And they refuse to believe. So Christ then is using the word evil, speaking of this generation as being evil in a narrow sense. He is speaking in light of their privileges, not the fact that there was murder and theft and all sorts of other horrendous things going on. The likelihood is that certainly around Jerusalem, if not Galilee, but certainly around Jerusalem, there was more law-abiding citizens, people who outwardly conform to what is right and good in comparison to all the other nations. If Judah was to compare itself with other nations in terms of the second table of the law, they would come up as those that are more honorable, more righteous, more obedient. But Jesus says, no, this is an evil generation. They are more evil than other generations. And so he's narrowly applying the word evil to a specific sin, not murder, and so on and so forth. He is narrowly applying this term to the specific sin of unbelief. That's the problem. That's what makes them more evil than other generations. They refuse to believe. This, of course, is spoken of in various parts of Scripture, can be brought out explicitly in other portions as well, in terms of this being the fundamental sin of Israel. And even when you go to Hebrews and, and what we read, it's all in light of, and I don't have time to go back there again, but, but this is the warning of the book of Hebrews, that they're in danger of 
performing, falling into, committing the same sin of their forefathers, which was the sin of unbelief. And the warning that is given then is that they will not enter in. They will not enter into the final habitation purchased for them in Jesus Christ. They will not have it unless they believe in Jesus Christ. That's the same here. So when Paul's writing about the distinction between Jew and Gentile, the reason why the Gentiles are being grafted into the olive tree, and the reason why Jews are being cut off, what's the reason? Murder and so on and so forth? Was it the fact that they cried out, crucify him? Was that the, was that the reason? As awful as that is, we're told in Romans eleven twenty, it's because of unbelief they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. That's what separates this congregation. Faith in Christ or unbelief separates the world. So this, this is the narrowness of the charge. When he says this is an evil generation, don't think that there was all sorts of uh, profanity that was going on there that made this part of the world far more wicked in that sense than other nations. I would hazard a guess it was far more law-abiding. But in this regard, they had been so privileged, and they still would not believe. You know, you can't, you, you can't read that and see that and then miss the application to 21st century America, living in Greenville, South Carolina. Unbelief here makes you far more wicked than unbelief in other parts of the world. So many opportunities, so much privilege. people still don't believe. What a judgment awaits such. Hardly bears thinking about. But no, also, also the accuracy of the charge. There's not only a narrowness in the charge, but there's an accuracy to it. Despite all the signs, they continue to seek for a sign. This is an evil generation. They seek a sign. They seek a sign. Now, there's nothing wrong with seeking evidence trying to determine whether this Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. The problem is the stubborn refusal to be satisfied with the evidence that is before you, the inexplicable miracles that are being performed, the sign after sign after sign, happening in quick succession by testimony of multitudes and still looking for more. These things were happening repeatedly. Don't imagine that the gospel accounts give to you the whole compendium of all that Jesus did. They don't begin to scratch the surface. As John says, should all the books in the world record the things done by Jesus, there wouldn't be enough room. There wouldn't be sufficient to record all the things that he did and could be recorded about him. Every waking hour, constantly, Jesus was moving from place to place, casting out demons raising the sick, giving sight to the blind, causing the lame to walk, oh, just by degrees that again are 
almost incomprehensible. And he stands before them again. As I say, there's not much focus really on the miracle because that's just matter of fact. He was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. And the people then, they begin to respond to it. And again, last week when we looked at the passage that precedes, verse 20, if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. And our Lord Jesus, as we said last time, is, is bringing them back to think about what happened in the days of Moses and the Exodus and the evidence that was put before Pharaoh. And when his magicians, who failed by sleight of hand to do what Pharaoh was asking them to do, they acknowledge this is the finger of God. They are declaring God is here. Pharaoh, don't miss it. We can know, we can, I know it's our job, you're paying us, that we might do everything that Moses and Aaron are doing. But we've come to the end of our skill set here. And we can't do this. We can't fake it, which is what they were doing all along anyway. The finger of God, that is, God is manifesting Himself to this generation. He is coming to them. And that's what verse 20, Jesus is saying. The finger of God. God is here. And since it's the finger of God, if you can understand that this is being done by God, all of these miracles, no doubt, no question, no need to be in any way confused about the matter, the kingdom of God has come. And it's come to you, that is, this generation, here and now. Of course, then the call then is to this generation to respond. The kingdom of God has come to you. It's come to this generation. It's come right here, first century Israel, my day. You are being called upon to respond. And so the accuracy of his assessment is seen in the fact that they refuse to do that. The finger of God is there, and the kingdom of God has come to them, but they will not enter in. They won't obey. They won't press in. They won't repent and believe. They refuse to acknowledge. And there are various reasons why. Some of it is pure stubbornness, desire to follow their own path, refusal to give up their idols like the rich man, the rich young ruler. Others, it's because they want to be seen in the, the status of the society in which they live. As I've mentioned many times, that text when he says, how can you believe that receive honor one of another? That is to say, it's impossible for you to believe if your objective is honor of this generation. You can't do it. And so if your desire is to court praise of men, you will never believe, ever. Well, that's, nothing's changed today, by the way. If you desire to court the praise of men, you will not believe in Jesus Christ. So their refusal to believe is worse. It's worse than Pharaoh's, really. This generation has fewer excuses than Pharaoh. Then you think of the plagues and the manifestation of God's power. And Pharaoh hardens his heart and continues on in unbelief. And Jesus saying, this generation is seeing greater, greater miracles, greater power. They won't believe. The charge is accurate. 
this is an evil generation. They seek a sign despite everything that had been shown to them. They continue to seek a sign. And they, they refused to see what was going on. They heard the voice of God from heaven. Physicians in various communities, they were out of a job. Leper colonies were emptied. No one had ever seen anything like it. The, the, the very course of, of the communities was, was turned upside down. Places set apart for lepers and men who dealt with the sick and so on, they, they were sitting around. It's like, what is it they do, the judges, when there's, when there's no court cases, they put on white gloves or something? Certain, someone here might know about that, but in certain cultures anyway, when the judge has no case, he puts on white gloves. Well, of course, that, that seldom ever happens. But there have been a few occasions. There have been a few occasions. In God's mighty outpouring of a spirit in revival. Well, that has happened. These people had no excuse. They had all, they saw all the things that the apostles, almost everything that the apostles saw. John writes in 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. See, man's problem is twofold. It really comes into the first catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And man rejects his primary purpose. He does not want to believe and glorify God. And he refuses what leads to his greatest happiness. He does not want to obey and enjoy God. He will not believe and glorify God. He will not obey and enjoy God. So that's the charge. Secondly, we have here a commitment. A commitment. Verse 29, continuing on. This is an evil generation. They seek a sign. There shall no sign be given it, but the sign of Jonas or Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. I want to note two things here in the commitment that's expressed. First, Christ's commitment is to do one sign singularly greater than all others. He states here a commitment that he's going to do a sign that is greater than any other. Now, when you read the account given here and compare it to Matthew's, Matthew develops a little more of what he's referring to in terms of the sign. Now, you can, you can read it and understand it here as well, but if you go to Matthew chapter 12, just to see how Matthew records in his gospel, Matthew 12 verse 38, Matthew 12 38, Here you see who's among the crowd. It's not just random people. We're told then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. 
He answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. So here we have it more plainly spoken, where it's referred to Jonah in that event where he's three days and three nights in the whale's belly and likens it to the Son of Man being three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So it's plain that the sign spoken of here, the singular sign that is greater than any other sign, is the sign of the resurrection. And Christ is indicating that there is a sign that will come. He is not going to go about doing other signs for their sake to prove it to them, but there will come a singular sign that will set the seal upon Israel forever. Whether or not they will believe Jesus is the Messiah will be how they respond to the fact that He performs a miracle that is greater than any other miracle when He is raised from the dead. You'll remember, as He likens it here to Jonah, you remember all that happened in Jonah's life. He was a prophet. He was called to go to Nineveh to preach. And he is more than reluctant to go there. And there's various uh, ideas given as to why Jonah, why, why would he not just go? Just go to Nineveh and preach, Jonah. What's the problem? And different ideas have been given as to his motivation. But not to get into that. He, he heads to Tarshish. He goes on his ship and off he goes trying to go away. And a storm comes and he ends up tossed overboard. He knows. He knows that that's the reason. That's the reason why the storm has come. God is speaking through His providence. And when the men are trying to do everything they can to save the ship, Jonah's saying, look, the problem's me. Throw me overboard. So they throw him overboard. The storm stops. But Jonah, Jonah is swallowed by this huge creature of whatever sort, a whale, some description, swallows him up. And... He is there for three days and three nights. Now, one of the debates that is ongoing sometimes is, well, well, since it's likened to the resurrection, did Jonah actually die? And was he raised again? And again, there's different ideas about that, and I'm not going to spend any time dealing with it. But, but here's the thing. He spends the same time there as, or at least similar to, our Lord Jesus Christ in the tomb. And he is spewed up then onto the beach, onto the shore, to be sent then to go and preach to Nineveh. And going back to our text then, we're told that this is an evil generation. They seek a sign. There shall no sign be given but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. In other words, as he engaged in his preaching to the Ninevites, it's clear you don't, you don't find this out in the prophecy, but it seems to indicate by the words of Jesus Christ that everyone knew what happened to Jonah. The news of what had occurred, him being swallowed and in the sea this length of time, everyone imagining he's dead. But here he is, he appears, and everyone becomes aware that a miracle has taken place here. Something very unusual. And he goes to Nineveh, and a part of the power of his influence is in what preceded it. The fact that this had occurred, he had been taken by a great fish and vomited out onto the shore before he went to preach. And this was part of the influence or a sign to help aid in his proclamation to the Ninevites. There was a sign given, a sign unto the Ninevites, verse 30. 
as Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. So Christ's commitment is to do one sign singularly greater than all others. It is the sign of rising from the dead. This is why in all the preaching that you find in the New Testament, the apostles are constantly focusing on what? He rose again from the dead. Beloved, sometimes I wonder if we meditate on the risen Christ sufficiently. Because for the apostles and the New Testament church, this, this was the thing. Yes, he atoned for sin on Calvary's cross. Yes, there's a preaching of the cross, and God forbid that we should glory in anything else. But without incorporating the message of the resurrection, there is no hope. There's just a sentimental attachment to maybe God, maybe God accepted this offering for our sins. But the resurrection removes the maybe and makes an absolute concrete place in which the believer stands and says, I know, I know that his once for all offering of himself without spot to God is sufficient to take away sin. I know that God accepts it. I know it's sufficient to deal with the problem. I know that his word can be trusted. That there's veracity in every single thing he uttered because he said he would die and rise again and he did that very thing. If you can't trust a man who says he's going to die and rise again, who can you trust? This is what he did. And it's going to be then, as I say, this is this singularly greater sign than all others. And if you don't believe post-resurrection, the judgment that will come upon you is beyond imagination. So we say also then that Christ's commitment is to do one sign singularly greater than all others, and as well, Christ's commitment is to perform this sign, Christ's commitment to perform this sign will be the final test for Israel. It's the final test for Israel. Again, look at verse 30. For as Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. This is the sign to you. If you do not believe when you witness this, there's no hope for you. John Gill, just to back up some of the remarks we've said in terms of Jonah's sign and it being known by people that he had gone through the experience of being in the sea and in the belly of the whale. John Gill, speaking of the sign, says, As he was by lying three nights and three, three days and three nights in the whale's belly, and then cast on shore alive, which sign or miracle was wrought to confirm his mission and message and to engage the Ninevites to give credit to him and repent or they might assure themselves they would be utterly destroyed. So there's an added confirmation. It's not just the message that Jonah is bringing. God uses the miracle to give power to the message. This is exactly what was said last week. This is the key. The miracles give power to the message. And Jesus is saying one more time, you've seen all these miracles, you are without excuse, and you look for another sign, 
I'm not about the business of tantalizing your curiosity. However, there's a sign to come. The sign of the prophet Jonah. Just as he was three days and three nights in the great deep, so will the Son of Man be in the earth, as it were. And when he comes forth, there is no excuse. It's a sign to this generation. This is Christ's commitment to follow through in his word, to do that which would remove all doubt. It is what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. It is the fact that we have an historical person, not an imaginary one, who entered into time, who lived, who died, who rose again. And when you witness to people, beloved, when you talk to people who don't believe, or they ask you the question, why do you believe what you believe? If you miss the resurrection, you have given an insufficient response. If there's no resurrection, there's no reason for you to believe what you believe. Nothing. No grounds. No reason. No resurrection. Your faith is vain. Your faith is vain. So when people ask you, why? Why in this 21st century do you believe? You say, well, here's why I believe. I believe a man lived, declaring himself to be God, performed miracles to affirm it, said he would die and rise again, did that very thing, and therefore, I believe, I believe, I believe in the reality of what he did, what happened historically. And when you challenge them, in turn, you say, well, have you ever looked into it? Have you ever given consideration of the resurrection? Have you ever really thought about it? And most, most that do not believe have not given an inkling of a thought about the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you have no ground to stand, and you have no statement even in your unbelief. You have no real logical statement of unbelief until you look at the resurrection. How have you? You say, I don't believe just because I don't believe. You have to go and look. You have to go and look at the evidence. You have to give weighty and serious consideration to the evidence, the historicity, the actual reality of a man who lived and died and said that when I die I will rise again and did that very thing. If you haven't studied it as an unbeliever, (laughs) your unbelief is on shaky ground. And if you haven't studied it as a believer, your faith also is on shaky ground. This is the reason why we believe. It's not because mom and dad said so. It's not because I'm standing here preaching it. It's the resurrection. It's right there. Everything comes down to that. It's the thing. <laughs> right? So, if, if we d- so this is why Jesus is saying, you, you've seen all these signs. I'm not about to tickle all your entertainment, but there's a sign coming. There's a sign coming. That's the final sign. You you don't believe with that. Your judgment, as I've said already, will be worse than you can imagine. Which brings us thirdly then to a comparison. A comparison. 
Verse 31. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. Christ here teaches, among other things, that of a judgment that is to come. And what's interesting is that he reflects upon something that the Apostle Paul teaches very plainly in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2 about saints judging the world. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And he says here that's what's going to happen. The queen of the south, queen of Sheba, and the men of Nineveh who repented at the preaching of Jonah will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation, and they will condemn them. It is not my purpose to get into that. That's a remarkable thing of what awaits believers and unbelievers. Well, we see the judgment upon the unbelieving. We're going to participate in it, at least in some degree. And two groups will be there among whoever else is going to be there, all the believers, of course. But Christ here makes mention of two groups, the Queen of Sheba, 1 Kings chapter 10, and the men of Nineveh, spoken of in the prophet Jonah. And so this generation that Jesus is addressing is first of all compared to the Queen of Sheba. Verse 31, here's a woman that traveled hundreds of miles to go and, we're told, hear the wisdom of Solomon. That's what motivated her. Hear the wisdom of Solomon. So there's been all this talk and it's spreading through the nations of the wisdom of Solomon. And her curiosity is so piqued that she is prepared to go on a lengthy journey and set everything in order in terms of her household and her affairs and make a journey herself. She doesn't send others. She doesn't send messengers. She goes herself. And she makes a journey to Jerusalem to see Solomon. A man that is inferior to Jesus Christ. And yet she is so motivated to do this. She is, we might say, first of all, a woman of stature. Busy, powerful, all sorts of responsibilities. And yet still she makes this journey. Hundreds of miles, weeks to travel, all the time spent a sacrifice to simply hear the wisdom of Solomon. These individuals to whom Christ is addressing, would, some of them, they have no interest in that. They don't come to hear the wisdom of Jesus Christ. They come to criticize. They come to find fault. They come to find some occasion against Him. That's what's motivating them. They have no real interest. And Solomon never performed the things that Jesus Christ was performing. He never did this way. He never spake like this man. Never man spake like this man, even Solomon. 
And yet people would barely move any distance at all for a sincere listening to what he's saying. It's all corrupted. It's all for vain motivation. She was a woman not only of stature, but of sincerity. She, she is prepared to travel. She just doesn't talk the talk. Oh, I would, I would love it if. And that's what they were doing. It would be nice if you would do these signs. It would be nice if you do some other sign to satisfy our curiosity. Here's a woman of sincerity who moves and travels simply to hear wisdom. And how the Lord rewarded her. I don't think she was, at least I'm not aware of anything in her heart that was maybe leaning toward the whole idea of salvation. We don't know. Maybe hearing the wisdom of Solomon has something in it, inherent within this, this, this words of life, as it were. We don't know exactly. But whether she had an understanding of words of life and the truth that motivated her to go, or she was confronted with it, in meeting with Solomon, she responds. Her sincerity is rewarded. She is saved. Oh, how far she traveled. And so, therefore, we say she is a woman to shadow. She is a woman to shadow. That's what the Lord is saying. You, you should really follow this woman. And if you don't, she is going to stand in judgment against you. The queen of the south, verse 31, shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. She came from the utmost parts of the earth just to hear Solomon. A greater than Solomon is here, and you won't listen to him. So, they're going to be condemned by her. She will give testimony of that day. The diligence of her heart will stand as a testimony against all who fail to seek after Christ. Anyone who said, well, well it, it, I didn't really, I mean, I didn't really have the opportunity. Really? You didn't have the opportunity? Did you, were you not aware that there was something there? Were you not somewhat aware? Yes, you were. And you didn't respond. Your curiosity didn't drive you. It's, it's like some people. You sit in church. I hope this is not true of anyone. You just sit there. <laughs> There's no reaching out to the truth. You know, that there's no life in you. There's no heart. There's no zeal. There's no faith-filled response to the Word. This woman travels from the utmost parts of the earth, and she will condemn you because you won't move an inch in going towards the truth. Oh, you should be begging for it. She sought. How she sought? She sought for the truth, and she was not discouraged. Proverbs 2 Three and following says, Yea, if thou criest after knowledge, and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver, and searchest for her as for hid treasures, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord, and find the knowledge of God. And that's what she experienced. Oh, get the zeal into you. This is what Jesus said. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. Don't sit there. Don't let the world pass by. Don't allow others to be saved and convert and go on to heaven that will one day stand and condemn you because you wouldn't follow in their footsteps. And you wouldn't respond to the same truths. Oh, beloved, hear me, hear me. Hear the word of the Lord. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. 
There's going to come a day where he's not near. He is not near. You'll be in the depths of despair. The judgment will come over you. Condemned. Lost. Perishing forever. And you can't, all your seeking then won't make a difference. Not that you would anyway. You'll gnash in your teeth. Blaspheming Jesus Christ. So the promise is, Amos 5, 4, Thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me and ye shall live. Seek ye me and ye shall live. This is what she did. She just sought Solomon. But she found life. She obtained the truth. So she'll stand and condemn those who stood in front of one greater than Solomon. So they're compared to the Queen of Sheba and they're compared to the men of Nineveh. Verse 32 The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. They repented. She came seeking. They weren't seeking. The Ninevites didn't send out a search warrant for a prophet. They were quite content. They were established there, a great city-state. They had their walls all built around, and they were self-sufficient. What a mighty city Nineveh was. Later on, there was to, I don't know, about 100 years or so later, they would have their great king, Ashurbanipal, who would be like the first Google of the time, gathering all the information from all the world. They had the first great library that we know of in ancient times. This is a greatly civilized people, at least in terms of some aspects. In other ways, they were far from civilized. And Jonah is called to preach to them. God sends them. And they repented. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. They weren't seeking for it, but they listened. They weren't going after it like the Queen of Sheba. But when it came to them and they're face to face with the Word of God, they responded in faith, turning from their sins, trusting in the Lord. So you have nowhere to run because some of you may be seeking and I hope you find. You will. You keep seeking, you'll find. Some of you have no interest in seeking, but it's coming to you. The Lord is seeking you. He's putting His truth in front of you, and you're no less responsible. You have to respond. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus, which is called Christ? What do you do with the evidence of this man of Nazareth? What do you do with the evidence in terms of His resurrection, this sign, greater than any other sign, what do you do? Even for those of us believers tonight that claim to be hidden in Him, longing, like Paul, to be found in Him, not having our own righteousness, which is of the law, are we living? Are we living with a constant appreciation of the resurrection? That we go out into a world fearful, facing the world as if, as if there's nothing to defend us, as if we're on the back foot. We are a people that believe 
a man, the God-man, who had power to lay down his life, had power to take it again, and he is our Savior and Redeemer. He is the captain of our salvation. He's with you every step of the day. Oh, child of God, what place have you for fear? Why is it the world overwhelms your heart? And why is it that the world seems so appealing when you have him? Oh, aren't we? We're, we're a pathetic bunch at times. We really are. Oh, the beauty of the risen Christ. The glories that he conquered death. And I'll never see the inside walls of hell. Ever. And we will stand there on that day and we will have our own testimony. We'll have our own testimony to an unbelieving world that will add to the condemnation of their unbelief. Wouldn't it be an awful thing if some family members here who believe in Jesus Christ would have to testify against their own family to their unbelief. It will stand in condemnation over those of their own kith and kin who would not believe. Doesn't bear thinking about. The Lord bless His Word. Let's bow together in prayer. Christ is risen indeed, child of God. Christ is risen indeed. Your hope is secure in the knowledge that everything necessary for your salvation has been purchased for you by Jesus Christ. You stand complete in Him. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Christ died, rose again, didn't continue to live on this earth. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, the first fruits, guaranteeing a new humanity to those who believe in Him. He opens up the way to a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. All the pains and the sufferings of this life one day will be over for those who trust in Him. Everything that breaks your heart, everything that brings tears to your eyes, He will end it forever. And so shall we be with the Lord. But what about you without Him? Could there be one here still resisting His Word? One here who says He is He is risen, but I won't live for Him. I won't trust Him. If you need any spiritual counsel at all, be sure to speak to me or someone else you know in this place that's capable of talking with you. Lord, we pray, bless Thy Word. Please bless Thy Word. 
Whatever is of man, we gladly, we gladly have it perish. Burn up all the dross. Let that which is of thee remain. Let it remain to the profit of those who have heard. God, we beg thee for salvation. Should there be any without Christ, we beg thee to save them. We cry to thee, O God, that thou wilt root out their unbelief. May they seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near. He is near. Oh, give no rest or peace till every soul makes their peace with thee. Bless our fellowship. Go with us downstairs, blessing the food to us there. May we know thy abiding presence through this week. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.